Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sneha Chowdhury, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Robert Trainham. Robert has had an incredibly storied career. He's worked in the White House, the Senate, broadcast news, radio, nonprofits, Walmart, and most recently, Meta. And on top of all of that is also a highly respected professor at Georgetown University and, in fact, one of my professors just this past fall. In this episode, we discuss the pride and the burden that comes with being the first, the importance of titles, his work with trying to change the system from within, and the role that service plays in his life. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Professor. It is so good to see you. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I was just saying it's been a while since we've connected last. Indeed. It's been at least a semester and a half, so it's good to hear your voice and to and to see you and to talk all things policy. So thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you. And you're out of town right now, right? I am. I'm in uh, New England, uh, just outside of Boston. Oh. Here enjoying the beautiful weather and Hopefully, uh, wherever people that are listening and watching this, hopefully they have great weather, except for allergies, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the allergies that, that follows have you no matter so where you work. are. Exactly. Okay, well, we'll keep it tight because I know you have family coming later today. So, like I mentioned in the intro, you have had such a wide breadth of experience in your career. Can you talk a little bit about what your progression has been like, specifically? What is your North Star? I know that you've probably at every juncture had multiple opportunities. How do you choose what the next best move is? Yeah, that's a good question. And thank you so very much for having me on it. It's just so good to, to, to spend some time with you. I, I would say two things, and this will sound um, slightly contradictory. And that is, is that I never, I've never had a plan. I've never really thought <laughs> through my whole entire life from a business standpoint or from a professional standpoint says, at 25, I'm going to do this. At 30, I'm going to do this. I, I never did that. And I'm not sure that's a good thing or bad thing, quite frankly. I, I will say, today that um, kind of germane really to your question is my values. And my values are hard work. Um, you know, remember to always do the right thing when no one's watching, because it's not really about the praise or the, or the affirmation. It is about doing the right thing, um, always. And so for me, in the professional sense, that is showing up for work before everyone else shows up. One, because I kind of just like that morning Zen time, but also two, I I I'm a I, I sweat the small stuff when it comes to making sure that whatever project that I'm working on, um, if you say Robert, listen, I, I need this by May fifteenth, um, by five o'clock, there's a good chance that you're going to get it by May first uh, at mm -hmm. nine o'clock um, because that's just how I am. So. Yeah. I think the thread throughout my whole entire professional career has been two things. One, I've never really thought about the bigger picture with respect to where I'm going to be, but mm -hmm. I have thought about the smaller picture in terms of how I want to be remembered, how mm -hmm. I want to be respected, how I want to be looked at as a professional, as a peer. So hopefully that that kind of makes sense. It does. It does. And it, it kind of is relieving to hear that um, because... It, put, it takes the pressure off of like every little next move that you make. You're like, is this the right thing for me? Am I making the right decision? So 
that that provides me some solace for sure. So kind of alongside that, in a lot of your roles, we've spoken about this both in class and also in personal conversations about being the first to do something and the pride that comes with doing it, but also the responsibilities that come with doing so. And in your career, you have certainly been the first to do so many things. What has this experience been like for you? And beyond that, with the concept of being the first also comes the importance of titles. And we've talked about this before. I actually think I learned this the hard way from you because on one of my papers, I kept referring to the vice president as just Kamala Harris. And you docked me points for that. You said the way my generation would say, you have to put some respect on her name and you have to call her vice president Kamala Harris. And now that I've, you know, I've been in my internship and I've learned more, I've really understood why that's important. So tell me a little bit about why you think titles matter and then beyond that, what the experience of being the first has been like for you. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up and I'm glad you brought it up in the context of class and I'm glad you brought it up in the context of the paper that you wrote. I remember that vividly um, because <laughs> it, 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 there's, so, there's so much here, right? And because in many ways we are humans and humans have titles, whatever that might be, whether that's mom or dad or pastor or doctor or vice president or president, or you you go professor, you're going down the list, right? And so um, the respect that that title, whatever it might be, and I want to be clear, it could be mom or dad or friend or brother or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that comes with that, it, to me, means a lot. And so therefore, uh, for some people, myself included, which we'll talk about in a few moments, to, to, to have earned that, um, to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to aspire to that, again, it could be mom or dad or something else, means something. And so you know, I always bristle when someone says, well, Kamala, you know, she she's she's not strong enough or, you know, or Hillary. Okay, if you're friends with her, <laughs> I think you, you certainly have the right to call her Kamala or Hillary or yeah. whoever it might be. But if you don't know her um, and or if it's in the context of policy or in her position as the vice president or the secretary of state, she is the vice president. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always bristle at this because Oftentimes, when we talk about men in this context, it is the president. It's not mm-hmm. Bill, right? Or very, or very rarely do we say George. It's President Bush or mm-hmm. President Clinton, or even, even to a certain degree, you know, um, Barack um, and, and President Obama. Although the only context uh, or nuance I would say is that with Michelle Obama, she openly says, "Oh, please call me Michelle," and that's okay. Mm-hmm. She, reser- she reserves the right to say, "Hey, please call me whatever. You call, please call me this." But my point is, is that this stuff matters especially with marginalized communities, in my view, it's because we have fought so hard. Let me back up. We have been marginalized for so long, right? And to be able, and usually um, with marginalized communities, we don't have the luxury of inheriting uh, uh, to to this position. We don't have the luxury Mm -hmm. oftentimes of, well, our father was a professor at Georgia. So I used Mm -hmm. to always say, and I still believe this, um, it's a glorious burden. Um, the glorious yeah. is, is that you're a trailblazer. You are, um, you know, breaking a ceiling in some incidences, whether it be in my case, in some incidences, being the first African-American, in some cases, um, being the first openly gay or, 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 or out gay um, person mm-hmm. in a position. And so um, that feels good. Um, it means a lot. And, you know, in some incidences, you're a footnote to history. The yeah. burden is, is in my view, and I can only speak for myself, and that is um, standing on the shoulders of people that 
uh, came before you that didn't have that title, but certainly mm -hmm. earned um, the right to have that title, but because of, of racism and sexism, and you going down the list, yeah. were never afforded that title. So the burden with that, right? Uh, the second burden in my view is, is that oftentimes um, you have a big target on your back. Um, yeah. because enviousness, because of jealousy. So there's a lot of people that don't like the fact that you are the first. Um, and so there, I've, I've have viewed this is that there's a expectation to go 130%. Yeah. And I think we see this with Vice President Harris. I think we saw this mm -hmm. with, we definitely saw this with Barack Obama and others is that, that there, there's a, there's such an expectation. And the one thing that I would draw your viewers and listeners to is um, Michelle Obama. And she wrote in her book, Becoming, that when she and the president, this was on January 20th, when she and President Obama were in the Marine helicopter flying flying to Air Force One to go, to, they were leaving for the last time. Um, when they got on Air Force One, she burst out into tears. And she burst out into tears. I believe it was almost for two hours. Wow. And um, she said, I was crying because of the burden that Barack and I had for eight years of being the first. Mm -hmm. uh, the moment that we slipped up, the moment that we mispronounced something, the moment that we didn't salute the flag, the moment that our girls, um, because they're girls and teenagers, um, would have just done something that teenagers do, right? The moment, yeah. um, just that enormous pressure on the world stage, she just burst out in tears because she could all let it go. She didn't have that burden anymore. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine. No, I can't. Absolutely not. But A, her saying it, and two, giving us permission to be able to cry and yeah. to say, wow, this is such a burden. I need to cry for two hours. For Michelle, Obama, and by the way, it's not just Michelle Obama, right? And Nelson Mandela's talked about this. Oprah Winfrey has talked about this. Even Sarah Palin, you know, as a woman yeah. has talked about this. Um, RuPaul has talked about this being the first, yes. the first um, cross-dresser individual. So my point is, is that there's so many examples today of this, so many examples of being the first. In my view, there's a glorious burden with that. So I don't want to belabor it, but I do think that there's something there that it's okay to talk about. Yeah. It's okay to be vulnerable about. It's okay to be proud about this moment, right? In history and time, whatever, whatever that might be. But it's also okay, I think, to acknowledge that you're walking a tightrope emotionally yeah. in many cases. And the moment you slip up, there's going to be half of the room that's going to cheer that you slipped up and that you fell, right? They're going to just cheer yeah. that. Way. And there's also going to be a lot of people in the room that's going to be like, oh, wow, they let us down, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. there's a lot there, not to, not to keep going on about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, that Michelle Obama example, I think, just encapsulates the idea so perfectly a bit of a follow-up here in situations where you have been the first and potentially have had people say things to you that may have been slightly racist or slightly homophobic and maybe it's not even coming from a bad place maybe they just genuinely have never been around somebody who has that identity and don't know what is right and what is wrong how do you in a professional sense go about that like it's even you know in my short time being in the workforce i felt at what point do you brush things on? Often at what point do you say, hey, you can't say that? Yeah. <laughs> what has your experience been like there? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to answer your, your second part first, and I'll give you some examples. I, it depends on the context. It really does, in my view. And this is, for everyone, this is so situational. Like, in a split yeah. of them, you have to make the decision, oh, this person's joking, this person means no harm, or no, this per this is a veiled, this is a really veiled thing. I need yeah. to check this person. So, so in many ways, as you, and you know this as a person of color and also as a female, you're constantly shifting in the workplace, depending on, frankly, how they're showing up, and you have to adjust mm -hmm. to that in many ways, right? And so the examples that I would use is, um, you know, oftentimes, not, not, not more, but a couple of years ago, people would say, oh, Robert, I didn't even know you were gay. You don't, you don't seem feminine. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. And another example would be, you know, and I really had this when I was, when I was, when I was in, in high school and in, in elementary school. Yeah. You're so lucky, Robert. You know, you don't have to tan like we do. You don't have to stand <laughs> outside and tan the way you, because your your skin is so beautiful. Oh and, my gosh, you do have beautiful skin. I the people listening can't you see, do, but you're, you're like glowing right you, now. You, you, you and I, I'm a slightly uh, chat darker than you, but you're beautiful skin too, right? <laughs> so, and I guess this is a good example, right? So you and I are joking about it, right? So I would yeah. never. We're joking, right? Yeah. But so it's okay to joke, right? But yeah. in the context of 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 in the workplace or someone's being a little serious in the split moment, I have, to, I have sometimes I have to say, "Hey, Sine, that that's not okay. You're not you're not making yeah. it right now. Um, yeah. please, please don't say that again. You know, yeah. in the context of being feminine or not feminine, mm -hmm. um, that's not okay. Um, I I choose to be who I am, my authentic self. Mm -hmm. Um, please don't mention that again. Right? That's not that's not funny. That, that's not funny. Yeah. Um, so anyway, to, to, to your point and my point, you just, I, I have to constantly modulate back and forth. Yeah. Right. Um, and candidly, I, I, I used to get this a lot. I don't get it anymore, but younger days, um, when I would do radio, um, or I would talk to someone on the phone, mm -hmm. um, and have never met this person. This is really before Google, when they, you could Google image someone, Yeah. Um, I would show up and meet someone. Oh my God, Robert, is that you? You don't, you don't, you don't sound black. Oh no! Or you, don't, you don't look black, or train them. That doesn't sound black. Yeah. And I would joke sometimes and say, "Well, here I am." You know, <laughs> I don't know what you're expecting, but this is me. You know, I would try to make light of it. If yeah. someone was to say that today, I think I would say, "Let's pause and let's yeah. talk about your prejudices," because I don't know what your definition of sounding black is. Yeah, but that's not okay. That's not yeah. okay. The one thing that I learned at Facebook is two things that I would, you know, impart to you and also to your listeners and viewers. And that is be your authentic self, show yeah. up the way you choose to show up in terms of what that looks like for you. But mm -hmm. the second thing is, is that I've learned is, and I learned this kind of a little bit the hard way. And that is the moment you, you, you feel as though is that someone is disrespecting you, mm -hmm. check that person in the moment. Don't yeah. wait. And the reason why you shouldn't wait, in my view, is because memories fade. And when you when you when you may bring it up at another moment, people may have a different interpretation of what you said. Um, yeah. People may get a little defensive and they they may um, think that you're festering or you're bringing up something from the past. Mm -hmm. But the moment you bring it up in the moment, it says, hey, hey, let's, let's pause. You, you just said that I don't act feminine. That That's not OK. Say that's not OK. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably better to address it in the moment as opposed to waiting in, in my view yeah yeah I agree with that I think it's hard to think about that early on in the career but I feel like as you start to build a little bit more respect and of a reputation 
it, that's part of being the first is that you have to say that because once you've said it's not right for you to say you don't sound feminine, they'll never say that to another gay person again. Or it's not right of you to say that you don't sound black, they'll never say that again. So I think, you know, people like you in that way are trailblazers because you're for the rest of us laying down those rules that like, hey, that's not okay. So kind of pivoting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say to your point, you you raised something that I didn't think about and I should have. And that is the more seasoned you become in your career, the more secure mm -hmm. you become with yourself, whatever you want to call that, the more bold you become by checking someone. And yeah. I, I think you may raise a really good point that the more junior you are in your career, I think for some people, the more resident, uh, hesitant, they're able, they, they, they feel comfortable addressing, especially if it's someone that is of a higher authority because you're afraid of your Absolutely. job. Right? I, I, that's, you, you, you raise a really good point there. Yeah, but I'm waiting for the day. I'm, I'm, I'm bold to myself, <laughs> but I can't wait to be bold to everybody. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's pivot a little bit. So a piece of advice that I often hear from people in the public sector is to wait until later on into your career to join the private sector, get your public sector experience first. What are your thoughts on that, particularly considering the pay discrepancy? Government salaries are so low and you could make two to three times that amount of money in a private sector role. How do you reconcile that given that you've had experience in both? I, this is an excellent question. In full disclosure, I'm a million percent biased because I am one of those people, two things. One, I'm one of those people that believes that public service, working in government is still an honorable and noble profession, either at the mm -hmm. elected level or, or even at the, you know, working at the staff level. But I'm one of those people, raise my hand, I'm one of those people that when I graduated from college, um, I went straight to Capitol Hill. And I made eighteen thousand dollars a year starting off, and oh then voted eighteen five, and then twenty two thousand. And I did it for ten years. And I did it so two things: one, um, the experience, um, the contacts, um, the ability to multitask, the ability to really, I think, um, through deductive reasoning, looking at the nuance of policy, has been the foundation of everything that I've done so far in my career. Mm -hmm. So I believe that when you're younger. When you can eat, you know, oodles and noodles, <laughs> and <laughs> not have kids and may not have a lot of bills, yeah. uh, working in government, because to, to your point, you don't make a lot of money, but that's not the goal. That is not the yeah. goal. Um, yeah. I, I strongly, strongly, strongly suggest people to do, especially Capitol Hill. Um, and to my second point, and this um, is a byproduct. I didn't think this, I didn't know this would happen in the moment, but it, 20 years later, this is completely the case. All of my contacts, for the most part in D.C., in some way, shape, or form, either I work with them on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. or, or we cross paths on Capitol Hill in some way, shape, or form. And I would say 20% of my contacts are now members of Congress themselves that we were staffers. Wow. Um, another 20% are senior bureaucratic staffers in a, in a good way, yeah. chiefs of staffs. They are you know, working in the administration, whatever the case. Mm -hmm. And 30% have left Capitol Hill and are now lobbyists and you know vice mm -hmm. presidents of organizations. So, mm -hmm. so it's interesting um, because I firmly, firmly believe foundationally getting that public service. And by the way, I did it for 10 years. You don't have to do it for 10 years, two yeah. years, three years, four years. Um, but I believe strongly that that type of service will just reap not only financially, but reap just wonderful experiences for you from a professional standpoint for years and years to come. Yeah, absolutely. It just lays the right foundation. Um, so kind of in a similar vein, 
when you've been in the private sector, which is, you know, like you mentioned, came later on in your career, have you ever had to represent any views? And this could be in the public sector too, as a communications professional that you didn't necessarily agree with. And how do you, how do you reconcile that? But also, you know, how does it maybe give you perspective on how you're representing people? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say from a value standpoint, I have not, to, to my knowledge, I've never said anything publicly, meaning since I was a press secretary and public spokesman, I've never said anything that I didn't, I didn't agree with. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that was, a, that's a, that's a bright, bright red line for me. I would also say too, and this is probably, I mean, the elephant in the room here is that I worked for a member of Congress for 10 years. I was his deputy chief of staff and communications mm-hmm. director where he was, he was Republican from Pennsylvania, Senator, mm-hmm. um, where he was, it still is, very much adamant against gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gay. So uh, I was out to him um, years and years ago. And I said, listen, I, I cannot, and I will not, I will not um, say that I am for uh, a constitutional amendment to, to ban gay marriage because that, yeah. that's, that, that, is, that is fundamental. So, and what I tried to do unsuccessfully, by the way, what I tried to do behind the scenes was to change his opinion. I tried mm-hmm. to work within the system to, and, and what I think I did was with the benefit of hindsight, I think I moved the needle a half an inch, not an yeah. inch, but a half an inch. Yeah. The question, um, so anyway, I, I just use that as an example of trying to work for within the system to try to change someone's position that I didn't agree with. I wasn't, yeah. but I used that. Um, but I would say that um, when I worked for Walmart, so I'm the son of a blue collar uh, postal worker. Mm-hmm. And so I will always have a soft spot for anyone living paycheck to paycheck, someone that's a member of the union and so forth. And so when I worked for Walmart, that was a little bit of a, of a challenge for me because Walmart at the time, at the time was anti-union and at the time wasn't pushing for a higher minimum wage. And so I worked there for a year, meaning um, in the corporate office, and, you know, honestly, today I said to my, myself, this is not what I want to do. This is yeah. not who I am. Uh, I admire the company in many ways from a logistical standpoint, from their perspective of, 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 of offering low prices to, to people like my parents who live in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the urban or suburban areas that are living paycheck to paycheck. I get it. Walmart yeah. is um, uh, a very large company that wants to push low prices to the consumer. Mm-hmm. I get that. But from a worker standpoint, I was not 100% aligned with what their thinking was. And Mm -hmm. so I said, I'm not doing this. I said, there's no way that I can change this company. This is a value of theirs and a value of mine. We are oceans apart. So I left. So that's probably a good example. I think two good examples of one, me trying to change the system from within. I wasn't successful. And me knowing that I couldn't change the system. So I left. Yeah. You know, what, what you said about trying to change the system from within is is really interesting to me because a lot of times I feel like when people have strongly held views against something, a lot of times it's because they've never really been exposed to it. They've never really been exposed to that kind of point of view or that kind of person. So I think that there's something admirable about saying, like, I agree with this person on so many other points. Like, I think if I can at least have conversations with them. And even for you to say half an inch, you know, I think that's still a lot of progress for somebody who has strongly held views against, you know, any type of identity or ideal. Thank you. Um, I can tell you that the Senator, the Senator that I mentioned, um, you know, I don't want to share private conversations that I have with him still, but I think I can say, I think I can say this with a straight face is that 
he is more tolerant and more moderate of his views around gay marriage and around LGBTQ plus. I don't, I would never say it's because of me. I think that's too presumptuous. I will say that I think I had a little hand in that. Um, sure. And look to that, to your point, um, is that progress? I'll let others decide. I'll, I'll let others make, make that decision. Yeah, I think it also goes back to your point from earlier in the conversation of looking at every role with what are you leaving behind? And even if it's incremental progress, I, I still call that a win, in my opinion. So <laughs> let's get into one of our last couple of questions. I know you do a lot of service work in your free time, which for the record, you don't really have a lot of free time. You we were working full time. You are a professor full time. I would say you probably have five hours of free time a week. And within that, you are a big brother in the Big Brother Big Sisters program. You serve on boards for nonprofits and universities. And on top of that, you're also a professor who's always mentoring students. There's never been a time that I've emailed you and said, hey, professor, can we please hop on the phone? And you've said no. You are always so solid and, and there for your people. Why is service important to you? And in some ways, have you ever felt when you were in the private sector that this complements your private sector work? And how? what role does service play in your life? Huge. And that is because I think at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I, I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. But, um, you know, 40, 50 years from now, when I'm no longer on this earth, I hope, my sincere hope is that it's not really about the bank account. It's not really about, you know, the materialistic things. My hope is, is that I was able to change one, two people's hearts maybe try to influence one, two people's brains, um, try to nurture, um, help one or two people that look like me, that perhaps, and I was fortunate enough to have a two-parent um, household, uh, but perhaps maybe someone that didn't have that. Um, if I yeah. could be a big brother to them or uncle or father, whatever you want to call it, father figure, um, and helping them think through their resume, helping them think through, you know, hey, I think you may want to wear a suit and tie today, you know, to this yeah. interview. Um, to me, that's so much more important. To me, that's so much more of a bigger legacy. And it goes back to my true values around, um, it doesn't really matter about the public ac accolades at the end of the day. What really matters is the quiet work to change yeah. someone's mind, to influence someone's thinking, to kind of nudge them a little bit, to put on a tie um, for this interview um, when no one else is looking. Th that to yeah. me is the most, most, most important thing. Yeah, again, and it comes right back into how you let in, which is like, you know, doing the quiet work, it will make a bigger difference than maybe having like this loud persona that is like, I did this and I did this. So, and I, I think it so. speaks volumes to your personality because that's exactly how I see you as your student. I so <laughs> the last question that I have for you today, and this is a question that I ask everybody that comes on my podcast and I may have honestly asked you this before because I, I love asking people this question. What is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew in the beginning of your career? Patience. Um, I should tell you one of my biggest faults, but also I think, I think one of my biggest strengths, um, and this is something I struggle with every single day, is patience. I don't have a lot of patience. Um, my fourth grade teacher <laughs> wrote on my um, report card, Robert is a young man in a hurry, and that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have a lot of patience for intolerance. I don't have a lot of impatience for um, pettiness. I don't have a lot of patience for that stuff. Um, however, the flip side of that is um, I need to slow down. Um, yeah. And I need to, and I'm constantly, again, I'm constantly reminding myself of this, 
Some days I'm guilty of not slowing down and some days I'm really, you know, um, and that is um, if I had to tell my 18, 19, 20 year old self on Capitol Hill that was so ambitious, you know, to, 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 to make sure that I was doing a good job and to make sure that I was having impact, slow down, um, yeah. just slow down. Um, because in the grand scheme of things, if you play the long game, um, oftentimes that is going to be your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so beautifully said. There's almost nothing to follow that up with. Um, and it, we have definitely talked about that too in class before about how early on it can feel so frustrating to feel like I want to do so many things. I have the energy to do so many things, but you know, I'm not getting those opportunities yet. And that was one of the big pieces of advice you gave us is just wait and it'll come Just do the work. And then after that, the things that you deserve will come from it. So thank you for this conversation today, Professor. I feel we've gotten to talk about things today that we hadn't even talked about before personally, but that I've always wondered about. So I appreciate you being open and honest with me. Of course. And thank you very much for having me on. And let me just say two things. One, excellent, excellent questions. Thank you so very much for showing up as a student and as a mentor and friend to me um, in many ways. You know, I view, really do view this as a reciprocal relationship where mm -hmm. your questions, you know, through your, you know, just your aura and how you showed up in class obviously was a gift. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Professor. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Enjoy studying New England. Um, and hopefully I'll get to see you again in D.C. soon.